Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet, with the Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig is helping me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi, Craig. The first big news story you've brought to me is a study published in the National Academy of Sciences Journal, and it's confirming something that I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago about me growing up on the banks of the Mississippi River. But this study is confirming that there are pharmaceuticals present in rivers all over the world, not just the Mississippi where I grew up. And this includes places like Iceland and Ethiopia and the Amazon. So what is going on here? Yes, it's absolutely astonishing, isn't it? And it is so funny, really, that you mentioned it as a sort of side comment just a couple of weeks ago, Carl. And then this study has come out this week, which is one of the most sort of authoritative and widespread sort of studies looking at pharmaceuticals in rivers around the world. It's looked at over a thousand test sites in more than 100 countries, and it found that overall uh, more than a quarter of the 258 rivers sampled had what are known as active pharmaceutical ingredients present at a level deemed unsafe for aquatic organisms in them. And this is because of all the medicines that we're taking as humans. Uh, Actually, of course, they go through our bodies, (laughs) out the other end, and then into uh, our our, uh, water systems, into our rivers and so on. And of course, they have that effect on us as humans. That's why we take them as medicines. But it's easy to forget that, of course, they will then also have an effect on our aquatic life. And particularly if you're talking about, obviously, species that are so much smaller than humans, it takes a pretty small dose to make a difference. And what's been found is everything from high concentrations of lifestyle consumables like caffeine and nicotine and painkiller like paracetamol, as well as sort of uh, medicines to treat epilepsy and uh, cancer and uh, nerve pain and diabetes. So it's a real problem. Uh, And, you know, this is another form of pollution that's affecting our aquatic life. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the study was saying, you know, most studies looking at this issue have have been done in places like North America and Europe and kind of developed and prosperous places. And this is the first study that's looked at over 100 countries. And they found that the chemicals were highest in, in poor countries that lacked wastewater treatment facilities, you know, places like Ethiopia. Nigeria, and and that's where they saw the the highest incidence. And it's not only an issue, as you mentioned, for the reproduction of fish and their development in aquatic uh, life, but also they were saying that they think it's going to make people more resistant to these medicines. So we're we're making these people that are already struggling, that are in poorer countries, we're we're making them you know less able to deal with illnesses if they're resistant to these kind of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I think there's a real problem that the report has highlighted about the increased presence of antibiotics in our rivers. Now, everyone will know, of course, about this big concern about overuse of antibiotics uh, around the world in in medicine around the world and and the problem that that can lead to uh, more resistant bacteria, bacteria that evolves to be resistant to those antibiotics. And what this report is saying is if you get high quantities of antibiotics in our rivers, that creates almost like the perfect breeding ground for bacteria that are then resistant to those antibiotics and then that means they're going to be less effective in the use of uh, in in medicine so this is a real global threat to the environment but also a a global threat to our health and some of the most polluted sites as you say are in the sort of lower middle income countries uh, where there's been poor waste management and so on but it's worth saying even in the most uh the, the richest countries you know it's not as if our water 
processing techniques are particularly good at pulling these out. Even the most modern water treatment plants find it difficult to pull out some pharmaceuticals. So it's a real issue. And we've got to try and think about what do we do to stop this at, at source? You know, and we all still we want to be taking medicines when we need medicines. But the fact is, we are taking more antibiotics globally as a population than we need to, and it's good for us. We probably do need tighter restrictions on the doses of some medicines, and actually it probably would be good for our health and for the health of the environment to make some medicines sort of hard, not quite so easy to get hold of. And, and there, if you really need them, of course, uh, but only if you really need them. And I think that's, uh, but that's going to be a, a heck of a problem to try and solve. Yeah, so maybe cut back on that paracetamol and, and nicotine use too. I noticed another water-related story showed up in New Scientist this month, and it, and it also took that kind of global perspective on water. But this time they were looking at the topic of algae blooms. And so these, these algae blooms actually strangle other aquatic life in freshwater ecosystems by either blocking light or consuming all the oxygen in that river or lake. And this study was showing how the problem is occurring even more often in in lakes and rivers across the world. So just how significant is the problem, Craig? Yes. Well, I mean, you and I, Carl, and many others would have followed this for years. And of course, algal blooms in our waterways and particularly in in our lakes is a real problem. It happens because of sort of as fertilizer runs off the land uh, and and, uh, leaves that sort of high concentrate of phosphates and so on in our waterways, that then sort of uh, fertilizes, if you like, algal blooms. It means they grow very fast and actually that sucks oxygen away from other aquatic life. And actually can also, if it gets really bad, can cut out the light reaching the lower levels of lakes and so on. And this has been known about for many years, uh, but actually this study, as you say, is a really kind of uh, detailed study looking at, at over a quarter of a million freshwater lakes around the world, would you believe? And one of the things that it's found is the incidence of these algal blooms is increasing. So uh, it was algal blooms were detected in around 3.6% of these sort of lakes between the period of the 1980s to the 2000s, but that's now gone up to 5.2% uh, during the 2010s, and it's uh, thought that it will have gone up a lot more again over the last decade. So again, this is a problem. And, the, and of course, the thing to think about here, this is all caused because of fertilizer, overuse of fertilizer, how do we make those fertilizers? Well, they're based on fossil fuels. Again, you know, the huge uh, fo- use of fossil fuels in our agriculture is really what's sort of underpinning now this overuse of fertilizers, which then results uh, in, in problems of algal blooms in our waterways. So it's funny how all these issues that we're used to, Kawa, are inextricably linked. And how much of this is a climate problem? Because I would think as, as water is getting warmer that you'd be getting more algae blooms too. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, certainly you'd expect great more algal blooms as water gets warmer. There's the other problem, of course, that if you get hot, dry summers, there's less water around. So actually, a lot of our waterways will be uh, reduced in the volume of water in them, which means uh, these algal, algal blooms and pollution within them will end up more concentrated so they can have a bigger impact on the ecosystems as a whole. So again, it's a real problem that needs addressing. But, you know, the solution to this ultimately is about us moving away from very heavily industrialized agriculture that is dependent on so many inputs, not least huge amount of those inputs based on fossil fuels, moving to much more kind of regenerative agriculture, 
that works in harmony with nature and, and won't result in this kind of a runoff of these, what ends up being these toxic chemicals. Yeah, so less less chemical inputs in our food systems. Finally, Craig, we both found stories in The Guardian this week that appealed to the animal lover in both of us. And I was actually taken with a story about a Swedish firm deploying crows to pick up cigarette butts in Stockholm. And you actually found one about chimpanzees that you wanted to highlight. I, I've actually always had a thing about crows because my granny and Carrie used to take them in and rehabilitate them when they were injured and they were just such smart birds. So I found it fascinating that this company in Sweden is actually leveraging that intelligence to have these birds pick up cigarette butts and then put them in this little bespoke machine where they get food in return for depositing a cigarette butt. So how do you feel about animal labor, Craig? Yeah, I must admit, I think this is a fascinating story that crows are being trained to pick up cigarette butts. But I can't say it leaves me with a good taste in the mouth, actually, Carl. I, I think Nor for it them, is a I'm bit sure. weird. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a bit bizarre. And, and I, you know, um, you know, it does feel rather odd to be getting crows trained to clear up our mess after us, not least cigarette butts. Wouldn't it be better not to just drop them in the first place, perhaps? Um, so I feel a bit weird about this one. But it does, of course, show just how incredibly clever uh, COVID's are, COVID's being, uh, COVID, sorry, <laughs> we've heard too much of COVID the last couple of years, <laughs> but what, how clever these COVID's are, um, as, as magpies and crows and so on. And um, it's even estimated that in some ways, magpie, uh, crows and magpies are, they've got the same sort of level of intelligence in some respects as a seven-year-old, would you believe, wow. which I find quite extraordinary. <laughs> so they are clever birds for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to note that they, they take part on a voluntary basis. So they're not being forced in any way to do this. They just learn that if they do this, they can get a small amount of food. And it's being piloted so that this company is ma- trying to make sure that, you know, animal welfare stays a part of this. But actually what I found... No were harmed I know, cigarette but butts, actually, yeah. if you look at the scale of the problem of cigarette butts, so in Sweden, more than a billion cigarette butts are left on the streets each year, and that represents 62% of all their litter. Uh, so they're spending 2 million euro a year on street cleaning, and you know, at least over half of it is going just to pick up cigarette butts. So this could save them 75% of that 2 million euro. That's a huge cost savings. And then I looked up the stats on Ireland in 2020. Our national litter pollution monitoring system said that just under a half Half of our litter is cigarette butts. So, you know, we could really use that cost-saving measure here too. And uh, and I know our crows are smart enough. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure your Irish crows are very smart <laughs> and very good at doing that for sure, Carla. Somebody needs um, to pilot this. But tell me, I think your story about chimpanzees is actually more impressive. So go ahead and tell us about well, that. Well, I, I don't know whether it's more impressive, but it, it makes me feel better, put it that way. Um, yeah, so... It, Quite astonishing story, I thought, and a lovely story is that a community of chimpanzees in Loango National Park in Gabon has been observed putting insects onto their open wounds and those of their offspring as well. So this is where they kind of collect an insect, they kind of put it in their mouth or in their lips and squash it a little bit, but then push it onto sort of open wounds uh, of the, their own, or indeed some of the mothers have been witnessed doing this for their Uh, sons or daughters as it were and you know this is absolutely fascinating it's kind of unclear it's been observed now and filmed in the behavior of um, 20 to 30 chimps so this has happened in a number of cases it's not entirely clear why it's happening it could be that the chimps know of some amazing medicinal properties in those insects uh, that are good at trying to heal those cuts that the young chimps have on them or it could be, and I love this, Carl, it could be that essentially they're doing that thing that we've 
we've all done as parents when you've got toddlers who've sort of banged their knee or something it's not they're not really hurt in any way but you kind of say oh well kiss it better or something <laughs> rub it better. And it's not really making any difference but it just feels feels better to do something and so they take an insect and they sort of squash it into the cut or, or rub it on it and I just think it, it just goes to highlight uh, they are so closely related to us and it is just so fascinating to see from across the sort of primate world if you like um, these this animal behaviors which just are, are so sort of evocative and, and we can relate to in, a, in how we live our own lives and with our own families. Yeah, I think we do something similar here with nettles where we rub dock leaves on it. And I'm not actually sure if that has an effect. But they do say that insects could have some sort of anti-inflammatory substance. So when these chimpanzees are, are catching these insects in the air and squeezing them, and it seems to only be flying insects that they're looking at, so they're being quite specific about the insect they pick, that maybe it is having some effect and that maybe we should be studying this as a potential medicine for humans too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, there's so much about the natural world we still don't know. And, you know, that's why it's so essential that, of course, we're able to protect these places, protect these species and to be able to study them and learn from them, because, you know, there is still so much to learn. Well, it looks like we still have a lot to learn from other animals. Thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly news, Craig. After the Thanks, break, Carla. Speak next week. Thanks a million. After the break, we'll find out how Ireland's big plans to develop offshore wind energy are progressing. 